Why is ancient history important to world building? Do golden moles have eyes? And can magic affect evolution? What does learning a second language have to do with world building? And why would you put salmon in the dishwasher? I'm Carrie. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast. I'm Josh. And I'm Monica. And this is the World Builders Podcast, because you can't build a planet without a plan. What is the World Builders Podcasting exactly, you may be asking? Well, I am here to tell you. We are a brand new podcast, first ever episode, welcome, where we, our hosts, will explore settings in genre fiction by crafting them here and now on the show for you, our listeners. Every season, we're going to explore and build a new world right here on the air. And then at the end of it, we'll debut a creative work set in that world. It'll usually be a piece of short fiction, probably a pay what you want kind of thing with zero dollars being an option. Uh, But sometimes we'll be doing something different instead. Yeah, like uh, this season, for instance, uh, rather than starting from scratch with a brand new shiny ready to be leased or financed if you have the credit uh worldview uh we're gonna be doing something a little extra special by going back to a world you may already know and love if you're familiar with our previous works and that is uh my baby boy uh the world of xanthru and even if you don't know about xanthru uh Our hope is that by the end of this season, you'll feel like you already know, live, and dwell there, work there, kill a few bandits there. Um, Yeah. Uh, You'll be caught up and ready to go when we uh, get back to a live play podcast that continues the stories we've already begun to tell there. (gasps) What's that? Shock and awe. Pause for dramatic effect. That's right, guys. You heard it here on the World Builders podcast first. Zanthuru is coming back. Uh, we are going to be debuting a continuation of the stories we started. But first, well, let's get down to business. The brass tax, if you will. Although not real brass, because that's hard to come by. Unless you're in Mazra. Well. I suppose we should start at the beginning then. Usually That's where you start. The beginning, the beginning of a story. Uh, so we should start where um, where you did, Josh. Um, what inspired Xanthuru? For I guess maybe would you mind telling us a little bit about what Xanthuru is, first of all, uh, <laughs> and then what inspired you to start it? Uh, short answer, it is a world I created to facilitate a, a storytelling at the time. Um, won't go into the grittier details on that. Uh, but anyways, I really, really liked the idea. And some years back, decided to... Uh, dusted off from the dark corners of my mind and give it a fresh coat of paint for a uh, forum role play and later on decided to do that again 
for the uh, the original game we just recently referenced. So uh, it's something I've been kicking around in the at least the back, if not like the 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 middle burner. You know, the one you don't really use too often because you don't have a saucepan that really fits on it. Yeah, that weird rectangular one we have on our stove. <laughs> well, see, that's for a griddle. Well, which we have, which is darn near impossible to clean. Yeah, they say it's dishwasher safe. It doesn't work well in the dishwasher. <laughs> yeah, well, they also say you can dishwash salmon to cook it, and sure, no. Yeah, no thanks. I'll I'll pass on that one. <laughs> I'd rather charbroil mine anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I don't care how many times and what way you run salmon through the dishwasher, you're never going to get a good finish. Always leaves streaks. Ah, oh, so, so Xanthoru basically is something that just kind of started. You know, sometimes we might have specific ways we go into starting a world. Like, I want to take this trope and turn it on its head, or I really freaking want to role play some Vikings. Um, but in your case, it just kind of, just kind of happened. Uh, more or less the, the core spark of the idea was I've always really been a fan of the real world concept of ley lines, uh, which for those who aren't already familiar with the term, and apparently not many people are, as I found out, uh, they are naturally occurring lines basically for lack of a better term that connect places on our planet uh it's where it's the term where we get the older coin of phrase our turn of phrase getting the lay of the land that makes sense i definitely did not connect those things i know i know a rudimentary amount about this world already um i probably have the least knowledge out of the three of us um but i definitely did not make that connection yeah, so basically it's the idea that certain locations on a given planet like ours are interconnected by invisible lines that we can't see, but they're there. Um, this kind of is paralleled by the concept of feng shui, where the location of certain things will imbue a certain amount of energy into an area, or that certain areas themselves have a power all their own. Now, whether or not that's the case in our world it remains to be seen. Um, but I liked the idea enough to say, well, what if that actually mattered? What if there actually was a network of lines and connecting points across a given planet that actually had power to them? What if this power source was how magic happened in a world? You know, no fancy, you know, uttering of lorem ipsum worthy long incantations to get your fireball or what have you. What if you just literally tapped into a power line of the planet and said, "Foosh"? You will have fire now. And that 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 was it. That was that was the spark right there. Is I like this idea. How do I make it work? Right. I I really like the idea that ley lines because I guess ley lines have been have been had like supernatural or spiritual beliefs after them for a long time so just turning that into a, a literal magic is uh it's really clever i like it mm -hmm. yeah because there's a lot of ancient sites that have spiritual significance that are on the intersection of 
ley lines on our planet. Yep. Yeah, Stonehenge is one of them. Yep. Just, you know, name dropping. Just as a... Yeah, and so being able to tap into that, and I really like, as much as I, I enjoy hard magic systems like Allomancy from the Brandon Sanderson works or Surge Binding, sometimes it's really nice to have a soft magic system where it's a bit more freeform, you know, the limits of what you're able to do are expressed a little bit differently. And you're open to basically whatever you can think of doing as long as you're still existing within what that world is capable of doing. As long as you've got a network connection, you're fine. I think many of us can can relate to that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, so once I had that core basic concept of, well, all right, where is this taking place on? I needed to really start building out from there. It's like, okay, so this this network of energy exists. You know, what is the purpose of his existence? How did that shape the world around it what does the world around it even look like and the second major influence that uh i came up with for this this entire worldview was a sense of scope and we know most fantasy realms in terms of our own world you know our perception of how things are scaled and how big our planet is and keep in mind Earth, you know, apparently you can circumnavigate it in 80 days from a hot air balloon. Hmm. You know. Who knew? Right. Yeah. I've, I've heard it described a lot as an Earth analog planet where, you know, a year has 365 and a quarter days. The seasons are usually, there's four seasons, you know, one sun, one moon. Unless you love up north and then it's almost winter, winter, still winter and construction. Yeah, it yeah. was May. And there was a snowstorm yesterday. It was fine. But uh, I wanted, for this, this story that I was developing in my head, I wanted an extremely grand scope. I wanted there to be room enough in the world as it stood to host a colossal variety of both geographical locations, cultures, different levels of development amongst them. And it's like, okay how do I make that work? And then I looked at our own solar system and it's like, oh, hey, there's Jupiter. Jupiter, for those who don't know, is roughly 16 times the size of Earth. It's big. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, for starters, we've got this network of magical lines running across the planet and the planet is roughly the size of Jupiter. So it's a big place, which means that right off the bat, I could ascertain for myself that wherever I wanted to start this story, there was a good chance that the people in that area might not have even known what's on the next quarter of the planet over, let alone the other side of it. Because depending on where they were at culturally and from a developmental standpoint, they might not have been able to make it around the world in 80 days because, first of all, how do your balloon ain't making it around this planet in 80 days? 
I didn't do the math, but it'd probably take significantly longer. I don't know if precisely 16 times longer, but... Eric, if you're listening, you know what to do. <laughs> so you have you have room, basically. Room, room to play. Lots of room. And room for a massive amount of different kinds of ecosystems, and they would have evolved in massively different ways, which is where you've hooked me. That, like, I'm a nerd. I'm a science nerd. I'm an ecology nerd. Um, I'm currently going to school to become an ecologist. Uh, <laughs> so um, the idea that you can have massively different on in different parts of the world you have massively different ecosystems and they would have some of them maybe if like had um convergent evolution so you have similar things in the different places but they're not exactly the same and that's well yeah because if you stop and think about it anywhere you've got a desert anything that lives in that desert is going to evolve roughly the same way because they're dealing with the same circumstances, having to survive ridiculous amounts of heat, sun, and probably a lack of resources. Exactly. Well, and so that's one, this will be my, my animal fact for the, for this episode. Uh, there is a, um, it's a golden mole, I believe is the name of the, of the animal. Um, it is not related to the moles at all. It is actually more closely related to elephants than it is to moles, um, but they look almost exactly the same to the point where um, both moles that we think of when we say the word mole and the golden mole have vestigial eyes. So they've basically grown skin over their eyes because you, they don't need them. Uh, they spend most of their time underground and really like their eyes have become unnecessary as, useful as a screen door on a submarine exactly exactly and i mean you could <laughs> you can tell when lights coming through um but but there's no there's no actual sight from those eyes so uh, yeah as a as a person who is interested in science but is not actually a scientist could that evolution have also been as a protection for their eyes from the dirt because they're constantly underground Yep, they probably that's probably one of the one of the reasons why it just uh it was selected for like hey, you're going to close your eyes your entire life, so we're going to select for smaller and smaller eyeballs as well as like bigger and bigger eyelids if that makes sense. Um because yeah. then you would have more of a chance of keeping that dirt out of your eyes. And for more on Monica's opinions on nature, creatures that live within them, and ecology, check out In Nature. Yes, and talking about evolution and the development of various ecosystems, various life forms and whatnot that live in them, you've got a world that is designed for a massive scope, huge amount of variety, but you also have this lay energy. And you were talking about wanting to make it so that lay energy is is real and affects things and people can tap into it. A lot of people in our world believe that Earth's ley lines affect us in various ways that we can't see. Was that always one of your intents was to have the ley lines on the planet of Xanthuru affect how life develops in certain places? Uh, it absolutely does, actually, because... 
when I decided that I wanted this network of energy to be an actual, maybe not visible, but tangible thing in the life, I needed to decide what kind of energy it was. And because that kind of thing is important, you know, you've got streams of water. Water is primarily a kinetic energy. It moves, it can exert force on things. That's about it. You know, lava veins and whatnot underneath the Earth's crust are going to be a couple of different, but primarily thermal energy. Uh, again, kinetic energy because it does have mass and it does move, but it's because thermal energy, it's going to probably incinerate you before it moves your body very far. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you have the high ground or not. But I needed to figure out how exactly this energy was going to interact with the world that it was connected to. And very early on, I decided that I wanted it to be a, for lack of a better term, a positive energy. Not that it was necessarily uh, positron aligned so that it had a plus charge, essentially, to use more scientific terms, but that it was a for lack of a more eloquent term, a force for good. That it would have a net beneficial impact on the, the life around it, fostering the growth of plants, fostering the growth and reproduction and evolution of the creatures that live around it. And that's where it really started to kind of individual pieces clicking together for me because when you stop and think about a network of lines crisscrossing across a planet there's going to be points where those lines intersect and you're going to have a slightly more condensed source of this energy and so right off the bat when i realized that that was going to be the case that this energy not only was mostly everywhere but also intersected at individual points and that it was net positive for the living things on the planet around it i automatically knew that okay well once they realize that this energy is there anything with even more than instinctual level of sapiens is going to want to be where this energy is life is easier where the lays are <laughs> yeah where these nodes of lines are life is attracted to life does better there right there is more power to be had yeah it it kind of it it's kind of reminds me of um like when oxygen became a thing in our atmosphere that's when the cambrian explosion happened and everything grew up very quickly and we we were able to support a lot more life on this planet so where these ley lines are now there it's a lot more, you're able to support a lot more life uh, around that that energy and fast forwarding many years um when agriculture first became a thing obviously you're going to put your farm near a river not next to a desert so if lay energy is life energy and a source of life it would stand to reason that the farmers might notice hey my crops grow better here yeah exactly exactly so we have this we have this setup already where we know a little bit about the way the planet acts in and of itself and we know a little bit about the way that the life forms on the planet are going to respond to the way the planet is set up 
And then you have to go and stop and add the extra level of thinking about how assorted cultures are going to develop. Because anytime you have living things, you're going to have the development of living things, you're going to have evolution, you're going to eventually have culture and society and all of the good and bad that goes with that. So it would come to pass that as societies developed, depending on their individual temperaments, of course, anytime you're going to have a larger connection of these networks of energies, it's going to be a hotly contested bed of resources. Definitely. And so people are going to want to establish there. And of course, you're going to have a little bit of squabbling over who gets to live there. Because for better or for worse, when it comes to, you know, life-giving resources, most cultures tend to get a little on the touchy side about what they think they're entitled to. <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of room. But if those places where the ley lines cross are the most advantageous to live in, then then that's where you want to go. Not So, like, think of it like on Earth in Australia. Not very many people live in the middle bits of Australia. Uh, they mostly because live that's around where the most murder is <laughs> right <laughs> most people live around the coasts so so like that middle part that's mostly desert and terrifying poisonous and venomous animals uh <laughs> you don't want to go there um um so you know just because there's a lot of space doesn't mean that that people will be able to just encompass the whole thing. They want to be where the where that good life-given energy is. Exactly. And if you're if you're a tribe of hunter-gatherers and you've just discovered, hey, if I put this thing in the ground, it grows and we make more food. Um and so you're looking to establish agriculture for the first time, hey, the guy, these guys have a really good spot over here and the spots next to it aren't so great, but there's already people at the good spot. As a tribe of hunter-gatherers, you're not going to have the resource to strike out into who knows where to try and hopefully find another good spot, because you don't know if that even exists. So you're going to go to where that spot is and maybe talk it out with those people and try to live with them, or depending on your culture, just take it from them. <laughs> As we have seen so many times in our own history. Yeah, we can be jerks sometimes. What can I say? And that's important to consider when you're building a world. You know, you you guys have kind of seen us now. We're we're following through Josh's thought process on how he's developed the world so far. And it's a lot of cause effect. A lot of I like this idea. So as a result of that happening, what else is a thing? what becomes of this decision that I have made, what's going to naturally follow from that. And if you want to design a utopian world where, you know, the people, sure, will all always agree to share their resources and share the good spots, that's fine. Um, it's if, not realistic, but it's fine. Yeah, it doesn't, it, that, I think that's where, I think that's where it comes to. It's like, it feels very flat if you, if everybody agrees to everything all the time, what's the story? Yeah, but at going to the other side of things, if you take the dark and gritty standpoint of, well, they always pillage each other, 
that's not accurate either. Yeah, there's a lot of like give and take. What happens when you have an abundance of conflict between individuals? Eventually, you're going to run out of individuals to have conflict with. Exactly. And so it's important, I think, when you're developing the history of a world to take into account both the good and the less good aspects of of human nature. You know, there are going to be stories of, hey, we founded our magnificent city because thousands and thousands of years ago, our two tribes decided to get along. And then the kingdom next door is going to be like, we conquer everything. Like, that's just, that's life. (laughs) That's history. That is, I think, one of the more important aspects of world building that often gets left to the wayside is they don't stop to consider these sorts of developments. Things that exist generally speaking, exist for a reason and have an impact on the world around them, even from a small scope to a grand scope. Nothing exists in a vacuum. And when you design something in a vacuum, if you take it out of the vacuum, it breaks. Exactly. And the thing is, is that we've never discussed this part of ancient history on the parts of Xanthur that we've explored on screen already. But exploring it as a writer is good because it is going to shape how your societies have formed and how your characters act. You do not need to spend three chapters explaining it to your readers. Yeah, you need to do the world building, but you definitely don't need to to give it in exposition in three entire chapters when you can just show it in the way that your characters act. Yes, and if you really, like, because, like, my issue as a writer is I love building worlds, that's why I'm on this show, but I have, I kind of have trouble expressing them in fiction uh, without fellow collaborators. If that's your thing, if you really, really, really want to show off the parts of your world that may not show up in your stories, put them on your website and direct your readers to it. You can still showcase it that way. That way the people that want to see it can and you're not disrupting the flow of the story. Exactly. Yeah, so like if they're interested in the world building you've done, you can publish that as a document. But it doesn't always need to be a part of whatever prose you're actually writing. Yeah, but it does It does inform what your people will do. So that's that's random writing tips PSA number one over for this episode. <laughs> So and what what I'm what I'm also interested in is so as we know from our own history uh, when human beings discover a resource they are going to play with it they are going to figure out what is it that I can do with this yeah we are inherently curious creatures we that's just who we've always been what is this thing how does it work and how can I make it work for me exactly so did you have thoughts of how the lay magic first emerged onto the world and how that got developed so that starts to branch off more into the individual cultures that i originally established for the world and the fact that 
the human analog, so to speak, was among the last of the sentient species to figure this out because they were more on the young side as far as a culture went. There were other things in their immediate surroundings that had a grasp of this energy, so to speak, that they did not until a certain point in their own history, at least as far as conventional and current knowledge for them is concerned. Because obviously, we find new stuff about the people that came before us all the time. And sometimes that changes what we thought was the truth. And obviously, audio podcast, you can't see me making the quotey fingers in the air, but I am. And we have to adapt what we thought we knew to what we perceive to have actually happened based on this new evidence. And these kinds of things are important as well when considering how a world develops, because in most cases, and I'm not discrediting the idea that it could happen in someone's story, a world does not just go. Yeah, it just doesn't materialize out of nothing. It develops over time. It goes through many, many, many different phases over hundreds of thousands of millions of years. And so who is currently in charge may not have been who was in charge 10,000 years ago. And so information changes over time. Uh, I say all that to say, when I started thinking about how each individual thing went about the utilization of this network of energies, I had to stop and decide, well, in what order did they do this? Obviously, when you look at more conventional fantasy setups, you have the wise and ancient and mystical elves who have been practicing magics for hundreds and hundreds of years, and Joe Sorcerer who just realized he can throw a fireball. <laughs> and obviously, those two individuals are going to have very, very different outlooks on how exactly this energy is and is not or should be utilized. And those are also important things to consider when developing a world is where on your world's timeline you want it to fall and how long certain individuals or individual cultures at least have been at that point of the timeline. Yeah, because if you have a culture that, you know, maybe your, your viewpoint character's culture has discovered magic very recently it might be feared it might not be understood that well or everyone might be freaking out and trying to experiment with it and going all crazy and doing all sorts of stuff if they've been doing it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years it is probably just a way of life for them yeah exactly but again those are things that you have to consider because again in most situations just as the planet does not go into existence, the magic does not go into existence. And especially in this particular instance that I've been setting up, where there is this network of energy that, to common knowledge, has always been there, it's going to shape how individuals developed around it, so to speak. And it's, it's difficult to continue on just the world itself without considering who and what lives on it and how it handles a natural resource of the planet uh, without actually going into those individuals themselves. So that's another episode. Dun, dun, 
done. So going going into this concept of magic as a natural resource, which I think is really cool, by the way, a lot of people will kind of take a world and just put magic into it, which is which is fine. It's it's a perfectly valid way of doing the things, but the approach that it is a natural, like that it's viewed the same way that we would view any other resources on our planet is really interesting, which also brings me to the question of can this resource be depleted? Is it a renewable resource or can it be overtaxed? Uh, that is actually something I stuck to consider, uh, particularly when doing the first set of refinement for the the play-by-post form roleplay that I was mentioning earlier that was the second incarnation of Zanthuru is, okay, this energy exists everywhere. Is it always there? Does your proximity to one of the lines or one of the nodes dictate how much access you have to it? If you're not standing directly on a line, are you completely cut off or do you have a proportionally diminished ability to tap into this reserve and of course that leads to the questions of what happens if someone tries to pull too much how does it affect the person how does it affect the network of energy and if it is a network of energy is it always consistently there and the answers that i came up with when going through this refinement process so to speak uh was that one no, this network of energy is not always there. Uh, there is one particular point during the planet's seasonal cycle that this mystical source of energy just completely vanishes. And nobody knows why. Nobody knows how. They just know that when it does, things suck. <laughs> because if you have this mystical network of life-giving energy that has always existed on your planet and everything has developed around that network of energy's existence, it's basically like cutting off a flow of water to a farm or completely burning down the, the forest of an ecosystem. You know, what happens when all the trees are gone in a forest? You don't really have a forest anywhere. You cut off a supply of water to land. What happens to the land? Well, it's certainly not going to be plains anymore. You're probably looking at a desert. And granted, this is only a temporary affliction, so to speak, that this network of energy vanishes, but it does impact the world around it because you have all of these creatures, big and small, that have lived their entire existences knowing that this energy not only is there, but that, it, that there will be points in time where it is not there. And how does that shape the way the societies develop? How does that affect the life that has grown up relying on it being there to help foster itself? And so I decided, since it's my world, my rules, <laughs> that when this energy does fade from the planet, that life basically grinds to a halt. Plants do not grow. Nothing is born into the world when this energy is not present. And that can cause complications because you're going to start running into resource shortages. You are going to run into medical issues 
depending on whether or not uh, life was in the process of being created when this energy just decides to nope out of there. And obviously, again, when you're dealing with things like cultures and resources, you're going to run into conflict when those resources start running short or disappearing entirely. Right. And it gives you more story angles. It gives you more opportunities to figure out what a culture is going to do when that energy isn't there. Um, it gives you more places to start the actual story you want to tell. Because that is another important thing when building a world for the purpose of storytelling is if you create a world where a system of magic exists, it is very easy to create a race or a character that identifies strongly or in some cases exclusively with that system of magic. So what does that mean for them when that system of magic is not there? What happens to Superman when you take away his superpowers? What happens to Goku when he stops being able to manipulate key? You know, a lot of a lot of writers and a lot of storytellers will fall into this trap where they substitute abilities for capabilities. You know, what makes a superhero super when you take away the super? Right. Right. Just pile pile on the things that make them capital S special and not actually give them any capability beyond that. Exactly. Take away the special powers and who is this person? Right. If the answer is not much, you haven't made a very good character or a very good magic system. Unless your point to telling that story is the character building their own identity around their powers and then taking them away to watch how they deal with it. That is the one exception. Right. Which is, which is character building. Um, but that brings up a lot of really interesting things for, um, for cultures as well. A lot of people just kind of put in certain traditions because that's what we have in our world. You know, how many fantasy series have you seen or read where the characters get married and there's a bunch of flowers everywhere and the bride wears a white dress? It's a lot. Yeah, but those are earth traditions. Those come from the Celts, the pagans, the flowers and, you know, the all of that symbolism comes from them and we brought it into our own culture. So when you take the origins of it away, what other things do you have that you can explore for your for your characters? For example, with this, you know, this dead season that comes once a year, You've got people, well, now you have to prepare for winter and you have to prepare for the time of the year where everything is going to just be dead and no life is going to happen. If somebody is born right before that cutoff where things stop being born, is that considered an ill omen? What kind of superstitions arise from this? How does it affect family planning? How does it affect their rituals, their celebrations? And uh, on the other side of it, when, when the energy is there, uh, the first birth after that would probably have an effect on superstitions. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good omen rather than a bad one. Exactly. And those are, those are all things you arguably should 
And let, let's be fair. With this podcast, we are never going to say you, dear listener, as a writer, suck. <laughs> we have strong opinions about world building. That's why we're making this podcast. But it is never to diminish another writer, another world builder, another storyteller. We we are making this podcast because we want to foster the idea of world building, of storytelling. We want people to put that layer of extra effort into their own works because they deserve it. Mm -hmm. And like with my example with the bride in the white dress with flowers, I'm not saying don't have your fantasy wedding with flowers. I'm saying think about the culture of the people that are getting married and think about why they're doing what they're doing. And if you decide I want my brides in this world to wear white because of this reason, do it. Yeah, it's it's as simple as that cuz I get at the end of the day it's your story. It's your world. You're the one building it. Just make sure that you're doing yourself and your creation justice. Yeah, I see I actually see this similar kind of bias a lot when studying languages because one of my habits is I will study other languages and a lot of people in the class will try to pronounce the letters and the sounds and the words in that new language with the same sound library that we have in English. They will try to apply English grammar to this other language. But that's not, that's not what you're doing. You're, you're starting something new. So I would encourage you when you're building your worlds to try to look past the biases present from your own worldview because we all have them. Every single one of us has them because it's part of how humans develop. It's part of how we experience the world. We have these biases for a reason. It helps us function alongside our peers. But when you're starting something new, it's good to at least Take a second look at it and decide, is this the direction I want to go or do I want to try something different? Yeah. Does, does this make sense for what I'm trying to create or does this make sense for what I know? It's an important question to ask yourself when world building. You know, is, is this what I want to make? Is this the direction this would actually go? Or am I just putting in what I know from my own experiences in my own life, in my own world? And while in any world building and storytelling exercise or intent, so to speak, you do need to retain some level of familiarity. That's why most fantasy settings have a human analog, because we ourselves are humans. We are going to identify with them. You do need to maintain some level of being able to give your readers, or even just yourself if you're doing it for yourself, something to identify with. But that doesn't mean you should hold yourself rigidly to what you know to be the way things should be, because that's you, that's this world. Don't be afraid to try something different. And I think one of the one of the things that um that I, one of the, one of the pieces of advice that I hear a lot is read more, um, read more different kinds of books that you're not, you're, you don't always go to, um, because the more you read, the more you understand how a writer has actually 
encompassed those world building pieces that they've done themselves um so that you're more i guess able to do that yourself and don't don't take please don't take away from this make things different just to be different <laughs> because that's not a good way to do it <laughs> take take out take from this have a reason for the things in your world yes yeah ne never just slap something in for the sake of slapping something in because you think it needs to be there yeah now if the rule of awesome comes into play and you say i really want this thing in my world because it's awesome great do it but make sure that you do so with a sense of deliberacy oh if that's a word but it is now own what you're doing put it in there with a reason for it being there and if that means that you have to scrap a lot of the world building that you've already done and start over that's ultimately a choice you're going to have to make as a creator yeah like for instance let's say you want to make a world where you're dealing primarily with neanderthal level human development okay could be potentially interesting you're not going to have a lot of options for dialogue if you're making a story out of it but that could be a very compelling way of storytelling now let's say you're like me and have a very strong passion for robots should you throw a giant robot into your neanderthal world because it's awesome yes but make sure there's a good reason for it are these people Neanderthals because humanity was almost wiped out and had to basically re-evolve from scratch? Okay, now you've got a reason for your giant robot to be encased in the ice. Yep, or what would have happened if Neanderthals evolved as the dominant species on Earth rather than, than Homo sapiens? What would an alternate year 2500 look like if Neanderthals were the top dog? Yeah, when we say world building, we're not saying, you know, you have to create your own planet, but, you know, alternate histories, those, that is still world building. Um, really, even if your story is set in modern day, you know, New York City, you're, or even just a couple of years in the future or a couple of years in the past, you still have to give your readers something to, to grab onto that you've, you've spent time thinking about. Mm -hmm. If your city, if your story takes place in modern day New York City, your character is probably going to have a job. They're probably going to have an apartment, maybe a house if they're super rich. But if they live in New York City, it's going to be an apartment probably the size of a walk-in closet. <laughs> right, and you and by building where they live and what their life is like, you're you're still building a world. Um, mm -hmm. You're building that character's interaction with the world. Yep. Um, Central Perk is not a real place, but it was central to the plot of Friends. That is world building. Exactly. And I think that's a good spot for us to leave off for now. Sounds, sounds good to me. Tune in next time. We, we get a little more into the nitty gritty about what kind of life popped up around these ley lines. If you would like to contact us, you can do so by shooting us an email at worldbuilders at rhinobot.net or by tweeting us at Rhinobot Studios. We'll be glad to answer any fan questions on the air, but since we do record these well in advance, please be advised, it may take us several episodes to get to your question. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the first episode of the World Builders podcast. Much appreciated. We'll catch you crazy cats next time. 
see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. This show is a member of the Rhinobot Studios family. For more information, including show listings, team member bios, social media links, and our community discord, please visit rhinobot.net.